2 Samuel chapters 23 and 24 today. We missed you last week. It was fun to get away and be with family in Ohio. Got to be with district family too. We went to Grace Evangelical Free Church in Mansfield, Ohio, where my folks are members. And they had a, a Reach Global Missionary, Sam Tabiendo, preaching last week. So we had some good, good free church fun last Sunday. But it was, we miss you guys and it's good to be back with you. It's an exciting time here at Lance Free. So many things going on. We got Hunter up here doing the announcements, and he's out of breath when he's done reading all of the different things that are going on. There's this after-church meeting today about uh, the DeRocher family concert. By the way, the DeRocher family concert is not tonight, okay? Those of you who read the regress, I mean the progress, might have picked up that it was supposed to be tonight, but it wasn't. Just an error on their part, which hopefully is corrected. Tell all your friends. I think that means that the advertising has begun because we've got some extra advertising in for that concert. But that's September 14th, and we need to do some planning for that here after the service, so stick around. Obviously, the Good News, good news Cruise is the big thing that's happening, not this coming Saturday, but the next Saturday. So be praying for the weather on that. There is no rain date. You know, we have it or we don't, okay? And we do all this prep, okay? So pray for that. If you want to grab one of those prizes, like there's a list of prizes that we'd like to give away, you know, go buy a quart of oil, go buy a windshield wiper or whatever's on the list. I don't know. I don't even know what those things are, you know. So, but, you know, Keith's got a list in the back. You go to the store, you buy it, you bring it back here for next Sunday. Be praying for all those details to come together. But most especially, pray for uh, gospel uh, contacts, for, for us to have good conversations, to represent the Lord well as ambassadors. And then it's exciting, it's a month of missions. We've got Missionary Christmas going on. And you walk in the foyer and there's a little Christmas tree. It's like, wait a second, what, what time of year is it? And we have all these guests. Last week, Tim McGill. This week, the Zeke Muggills. Next week, the O'Briens, which we've never met here before. We showed the video of them a few months ago. But our missions ministry team actually met them by Skype. So even though we're now supporting them monthly, this will be our chance to get to know them some. So make sure you come. Uh, early, you know, 9 o'clock uh, to hear the O'Briens next Sunday. And then the Ileses the, the next week after that. So it's just, there's just so many things going on. And that's wonderful. Let's keep our focus on the Lord, pray for these things, get involved wherever we can. Sounds like the youth are busy. It's just a wonderful time right now. It's good to be back. This morning, we're going to finish our sermon series on 2 Samuel. Some of you are cheering. It's like, oh, I can't believe we finally reached the end. This is the last message in the series. We started 1 Samuel on September 1st, 2013. So for about a year, a total of only 33 messages, because we take breaks here and there, but for, for almost a year now, we've been studying these two books of God's Word, 1 and 2 Samuel. The first series we called A Heart for the Heart of God. And the key idea there was seeing what God saw in David. What God delighted to see in David, a heart for his own heart. David was far from perfect, but he did love God. And the second series that we're finishing today, we have called The Lord is My Rock. And all the songs this morning were about that, right? The key idea there was seeing what David saw in God. What David delighted to know about his Lord. In the last chapter, chapter 22, David said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. 
even though David's kingly rule was marred by his sin and its consequences. And we've seen that. David knew that God had been good to him over and over again and gave him praise. As we study these last two chapters this morning, I want us to take one more long look at the heart of David. I'm going to call this message, Learning from the Heart of King David. As we said last time we were in 2 Samuel together, these last four chapters are a different kind of ending than we would probably come up with. It's not like a movie that we watch today, not like a TV show. Chapter 21 was out of chronological order. And so is chapter 24, the last chapter in the book. Chapters 22 and 23 are from later in David's life. Chapter 23 says that it starts with David's last words, meaning not the last thing he ever said, but the last public statement he ever made, his last psalm, his last time going on the record, right? We said the White House said today, and the press secretary gets up, well, this is David said today, his last statement. And then there's this kind of hall of fame list of David's mighty men. And then in chapter 24, a story from somewhere in the middle of David's reign when he made a tragic error with tragic consequences. You know, I wouldn't put these things at the end of my book. If I were writing 2 Samuel, I wouldn't do it that way. Aren't you glad I didn't write 2 Samuel? God is. These are what he wants for us to get at the end of 2 Samuel. And what I think I need to point out is what we see and hear from the heart of David in these last two chapters. Let's ask ourselves this question as we read. What does David say and sing and do that reveals to us what a godly heart is like? What does David say and sing and do that reveals to us what a godly heart is truly like? Let's take one more time to learn from the heart of King David. But first, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is a precious privilege to have the word of God translated into our own heart language. And on top of that, to have multiple versions of it in our heart language. What a gift it is to us to have different versions, even here in this, in this room, where we can compare. Not everybody in the world has the Bible in their own heart language. And here we've got multiple versions. That's a treasure, Lord. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of that treasure. To dive into your word of your word and to see it as full of gold if we dig. Help us to dig and to get out of it what you would have for us today. Help us to see in our one last look at David what a godly heart is like, what he said and sang and did that showed us what a godly man, what a godly person is like. And help us, Lord, to go and do likewise. And help us more than that, Lord, to see who you are. Because David had a heart for the heart of God. When we look at what his heart focuses on, we see you. So help us to behold you as we just sang about. Give us a fresh vision of who you are and how that changes us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 23. These are the last words of David. 
the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. No question about who these next words are written by, is there? David, son of Jesse. He's been after God, the main character of these two books. Son of Jesse, exalted by the Most High. He's been made king, anointed, not just by Samuel in the presence of his brothers, but by God, the God of Jacob, the God of the promises. And a songwriter, Israel's singer of songs. The King James has the sweet psalmist of Israel. What is the the last psalm all about? What is the sweet psalmist's last psalm all about? It's prophetic, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. David is singing about being a righteous ruler. It's a message he got from God Himself. Again, notice he calls God the rock. A trustworthy place to stand. Somewhere solid to hold on to in a shifting world. Anybody watch the news this week? What a situation our world is in right now. In so many ways. Do we need a rock in this world? He calls Him the rock. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, what did He say? When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Doesn't that sound good? When you have a righteous ruler that fears God, then it is so good. It is pure blessing. Beautiful. Like light at dawn. And refreshing like how everything is after a life-giving reign. And that's the kind of rule that David has sought to provide for his kingdom. Now he's done it imperfectly. That's for sure. We've read 2 Samuel. But it's been what his heart has desired. And now looking forward, David trusts that God has good things in store for his kingdom. In fact, he's promised it. Look at verse 5. Is not my house right with God? Has He not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secure in every part? Will He not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? The answer to all those rhetorical questions is yes. Yes, His house is right with God. Yes, His God has made an everlasting covenant with David. Remember 2 Samuel 7? We said that was kind of where everything was going and where everything flows out of. The covenant God made with David. And God will bring fruition to David's salvation and grant his desires. Yes, he will. Here's what we learn from the heart of David's last psalm. Believing in the promises of God. Believing in the promises of God. David believes that God is going to do everything that he promised he would do. That's why he says, Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? David exults in God's promises. He exults in his covenant. He makes a song about it. His last song. If you're going to write the last song of your life, what would you want it to be? Kind of a boppy little tune. 
kind of, I hope things work out. Or is it, I'm dying, I'm dying. This is bad. What would you want your last song to be about? This is what David's last song is about. i got time to write one more song that I'm going to give to people to sing. This is what he says. He exults in God's promises because he knows God will keep his promises. He always does. Verse 6. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses the tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Evil men are the opposite of righteous rulers. David has always opposed them. And he knows that God will too. I would love for my last song to be confident and joyful as well. To know and to proclaim not just how God... Not just how good God has been all of my life. That's the last chapter. That was chapter 22. He's he saved me from my enemies. He's been there for me over and over again. Okay? Yeah, I want to sing that. But I also want to lay down to the sleep of death, knowing and proclaiming how good God will be to me and to those I love. Have you ever noticed how often the applicational point of an Old Testament passage is to trust that God will always keep His promises. How many times have I said that as we've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now the books of Samuel? God always keeps His promises. How many times have I said that? Hundreds. Yeah, a lot. John Lee says, a lot. Yeah, that's right. What? Why? Because that's the message of the Old Testament. God's made promises. And he's going to keep them. This morning, Zeke talked about the life of Joseph in the Sunday school class. And he talked about how Joseph believed the promises. The promise of the land, right? Joseph was the one that got them all to go down into Egypt. Saved them from famine. Okay, But did Joseph just love Egypt? No. He, he gave instructions concerning his what? His bones, right? If I, if I had a rock band, I would name it Joseph's Bones. Okay? That would be the name of my band, right? Joseph's bones. What's the point of those bones? It's faith, right? It's faith that God will keep His promises. That land is going to be ours. We trust Him. So he, take my bones up to eat, uh, up to Israel. Bury me up there. Right? Do you need to trust in God's promises today? Is it? Do you need to be reminded that He is faithful? Wherever David has failed, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson will not fail. King Jesus' rule will be the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. And like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. If it was true in part with David, how much more will it be true when King Jesus reigns on the earth? Amen? Now this next section is often called David's Mighty Men because it's a long list of the best warriors in David's armed forces. In fact, these guys are the special forces. In fact, they are the special forces of the special forces. And it's clearly important that they be honored for their service to, for, and alongside David. But there's a little detail that gets easily overlooked when we read their stories. And it just pokes out from behind the scenes in a couple of places. We don't want to miss where their victories 
come from. Look at verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, Bas, Shebeth. A Tuchmanite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Wow. Can you imagine that? I wouldn't want to see that movie, right? This guy would scare Chuck Norris. 800 men in one encounter. Verse 9. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Now don't miss it. Here it is. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Adji, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, single-handedly, and struck the Philistines down. But don't miss it. Here it is again. The Lord brought about a great victory. Here's the lesson learned. Rejoicing in the victory of God. Rejoicing in the victory of God. These are great battles fought by courageous men. I mean, it's got the field of lentils, and it's just him versus that other army, right? I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. But the victory was ultimately from God. And David knew that. Verse 13. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. This is probably before he was even king. Okay? Taking you back. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, his sweet hometown. David longed for water and said, almost probably under his breath, didn't mean it, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He means, I was, wish I was home. That's what he means. Well, a trio of his guys, they say, all right, let's do this, all right? So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, fighting all the way, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. These are some mighty warriors. Three guys versus the whole Philistine garrison at Bethlehem. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Was, was David throwing that water away? Oh, phew, can't drink that. No, he, he was honoring them. Right? And more than that, verse 16 says, he poured it out where? Before the Lord. Like a drink offering, sacrifice. He honored these men by the risk they took. And he worshipped God in the act. See, David rejoiced in the victory of God. You and I rejoice in the victories that He gives us. I don't know about you, but I often ask God for help. And then after I maybe do a good job, I try to steal the glory when the good things roll in. I, I thank other people. Hey, thanks for that. Thanks, thanks. But I don't thank God for answered prayer. Not enough. 
But if we have a heart for the heart of God, you give God the credit when the victories come. David was really good at that. He poured out that water as a statement of honor of the mighty men and worship of the God who gives victory. Verses 18 through 39 are a further list of these mighty men. The Bible loves lists like this. And I think that reminds us that people are important to God. And that even nobodies, who no one even remembers except they were on this list, matter to God. I'm going to, as, as is my want, I'm going to read it, and you pretend I'm pronouncing it right. Okay? Because who knows, right? A lot of these people, this is the only time their name appears in the Bible. We don't know what they did except they were on this group. But that says to me, he knows my name. Right? 300 years from now, if the Lord tarries, nobody's going to remember us. Right? We're going to be on some genealogical list of somebody's family. Right? But God knows our name. He knows us. And we aren't that mighty. Verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the thirty were Azahel, the brother, brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shammah, the Herodite, Elika, the Herodite, Helez, the Paltite, Ira, son of Ikesh from Tekoa, Abiezer from Anatoth, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharari the Netophathite. Boy, there's a lot of these. Let's do it though. Heled, son of Baana the Netophalathite. Ithai, son of Ribai from Gibeah and Benjamin. Benaiah the Pirathonite. Hidai from the ravines of Gaash. Abi Alban the Arbathite. Osmaveth the Barhumite. Eliabah the Shalabonite. The sons of Jashin. Jonathan, son of Shammah the Hararite, Ahiam, son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphelet, son of Ahazbai, the Maakathite, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Egal, son of Nathan, from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berathite, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. There were 37 in all. Ooh, it's hard to read that last one, isn't it? Uriah the Hittite. That reminds us of God's grace, doesn't it? It reminds us that even though David loved the Lord, he had feet of clay, and he sinned greatly. And it reminds us of God's grace, that even though David sinned so greatly, he could still be forgiven and be used of God. That's what happens in the next chapter. Again, chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. 
So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Now verse 1 is confusing on any reading. It seems to say that God commanded David to take a census, which we're going to read in, in the next few sentences, is a really, really, really bad idea. Well, that's about what it says, and I don't know that I can easily explain it. Israel has made God angry with some unstated sinful behavior, and God has decided to use David's foolishness to bring judgment upon Israel. So God stirs up David to take this census. Now, the book of 1 Chronicles makes it a little more complicated, but perhaps clearer to say that Satan incited David to do this foolish thing. And I think that probably means that God in his sovereign wisdom permits Satan to tempt David into doing something very wrong so that God's ultimate purpose is achieved. And the author of 1 Samuel is just cutting out the middleman in his telling of the story. Any way about it, David shouldn't do this thing even though God has ulterior motives for it, ultimate motives for it. Do you know why I say David shouldn't do it? Because Joab, even Joab, is worried about it. And Joab, as we've seen again and again, is no stickler for ethics. He thinks it's a bad idea. Look at verse 3. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it, but why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? Now we don't know why this particular census was evil. In the book of Numbers, they number the troops, and God said to do it, and it was right. But here it clearly was not something they should do. Perhaps it was so that David could rest and trust in his armies instead of in the Lord. Or perhaps he wasn't following the law to the letter as he should have. He wasn't taking the tax for each fighting man. Or perhaps he was acting like all the kings of all the other nations, acting like Saul did. We're not quite sure. Verse 4. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town in the gorge. And then they went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead in the region of Tatim Hodshai and on to Danjan and around toward Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. That's 1.2 million soldiers. And all of a sudden, David has an attack of conscience. What have I done? That's what he says. What have I done? Verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. You know what that is? That's a man after God's own heart. You know, we want David to be sinless and to never do anything stupid or sinful. Right? We, I wish he didn't. Nine months he sent them around all over the, the, the nation counting every single guy with the sword. If you called up a muster, we'd have 1.2 million soldiers. 
I wish he hadn't done that. Pretty soon he's going to wish he hadn't done that. But this is where he owns it. David repents. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I have done a very foolish thing. No excuses. No half-hearted apology. No justifications. No explanations. No pointing the finger at anybody else. Just repentance. And looking to God for mercy. See, friends, that's a man after God's own heart. Now, don't hear me saying that God loves those who run out and sin all the more so that grace may abound. God sure loves people who sin a lot and then ask for forgiveness. No, we are people who sin a lot. God loves those who repent, who own their sin and turn away from it and look to God for mercy. Here's what happened. Remember, God is using this time as a time to discipline Israel. Verse 11. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, pick your poison. Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me? What would you have chosen? Learn here from David's heart. Verse 14. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Third and last point this morning. Trusting in the mercy of God. Trusting in the mercy of God. David knew his God, didn't he? David knew that he deserved wrath, he deserved death, his nation deserved judgment, but David also knew that God was rich in mercy. Now you and I, we look at this passage and that's not what we see, is it? We see severity. We see an angry God who brings a plague. He gives them three choices. And I wouldn't want any of those choices. We see a God who is holy. Holy, holy, holy. But He's also rich in mercy. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, David says, for His mercy is great. But don't let me fall into the hands of men. And David was right to trust in God's mercy. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. The angel Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. That's mercy, folks. That's not what they deserved. They got what they didn't deserve. They didn't get what they deserved. They couldn't earn it. They couldn't, they, they couldn't have worked up to this. It was mercy. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, 
I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. That's owning it. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Araunah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. In other words, I expect mercy and we're going to worship God right here. Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arauna gives all this to the king. Arauna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is not how I would end the books of First, uh, books of first and Second Samuel. If I were writing it, I would have cinematic music come in, and I would have David dying a happy death, and that that's how I would end it. Okay? Maybe... You know, something about his kids living happily ever after, something like that. But God wants the books to end on this note of mercy and sacrifice. God wants this book to end with a picture of a holy God who becomes angry at sin and mysteriously uses even the foolish sinfulness of men to accomplish His purposes. And He also wants to end it with a picture of a merciful God who can be approached with genuine repentance in your heart and a costly sacrifice for your sin. What does that remind you of? I hope it reminds you of the cross of Jesus Christ. Trusting in the mercy of God. Paul said, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Rich in mercy. Have you trusted in the mercy of God extended to you through David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ? I'd hate to leave my eternal destiny in the hands of men. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. But my eternal destiny is safe because it's in the hands of of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are merciful hands. Christ died to make me alive through the richness of God's mercy. Have you trusted in the mercy of God extended to you through Jesus Christ? I invite you to do so today. One more thing as we close. Kind of hidden here. But the Chronicle, the book of Chronicles, the Chronicler tells us that it was at this spot where David built his altar... That's the very spot where Solomon is going to build his temple. And that's the place where justice and mercy meet at a sacrifice. That place where God meets with his people, the temple. 
which is also a picture of Jesus Christ. John Newton wrote, Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who has washed us with His blood has secured our way to God. May we have a heart like David's heart when he was at his best, believing in the promises of God, rejoicing in the victory of God, and trusting in the mercy of God.